Okay, welcome everybody. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, continuing on with last week. Going to pick it up at verse 18. I wrote it on the board. If you are following along with us in your Bible, you want to put your finger in 2 Peter chapter 1, because we're going to use that to discuss some of the principles that are be in, being talked about here in 1 Corinthians. Uh, and if you haven't been with us before, we go verse by verse. We have uh, an audience, uh, a live studio audience here in the congregation. We gather to study. And then we have people who watch live at home. So we want to welcome you who are watching uh, from there. Our prayers and thoughts are with you as we're all part of the body. And then those who will watch on the archives. So uh, it's a great group of believers. We begin with a prayer. We'll sing the word of God set to music. And we'll come back and uh, after sitting in silence for a few minutes, we'll come back and get into our verse by verse. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you uh, for life. Beautiful weather here in Salt Lake City, a spring day. Grateful for the change of seasons, which evident your, evidence your hand in nature, and uh, which is a testament of your existence. We pray that we will look to you in spirit and truth, that we will let whatever the message is in the word today uh, move us to the places you want to have us in our walk, and that the words of man, um, my insights that are improper, incorrect, will be forgotten. Uh, that we will be led by you. And that's our, that's our goal. That's our hope. We hope also, Lord, to exit here better Christians than when we came in because of the words that we hear and the things we study. And then we can apply that faith. Uh, as love is a verb, we can apply that faith out into the world, which is the whole purpose of this stuff, is to be able to love out in the world. So be with us now as we consider your words set to music. In Jesus' name, amen. Show me your ways, O oh Lord, teach me your path. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my Show me your way. 
Okay. Last week, we sojourned uh, heavily into the passages, Mark 9 through 17, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We ended at verse 17, where Paul said, But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. We talked at length about that. And in the face of him saying all this discussion, and being joined with uh, prostitutes and and harlots and things, heavy discussion. He gives a direct apostolic uh, insight that is applicable to them, especially, and it's applicable to us. And he says, verse 18 through 20, flee fornication. Every sin that a man do, doeth is without the body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So, let's go back through these verses to verse 18, he starts off with a very powerful phrase in the Greek, flee fornication. It's fugo pornea, and there is an emphasis in the word fugo. Um, and for good reason, some behaviors that are counter to our identity with God, gossiping and lying and, and anger and or, or jealousy, or whatever, envy, are manageable uh, within ourselves. When they're presented to us, they might be manageable to us, and there's no need to fugo them, meaning flee from them. Uh, I can be in a room f full of temptation to exhort, um, extort somebody or to lay with other men. We've talked about that subject here in Scripture. I can be in a room full of temptation to hurt a child in some a demented way, and it's not going to affect me. In my, over the course of my life, extortion and, and homosexuality and hurting a child have not been any problem. But So there's no reason for me to flee those things relative to my spiritual safety. But the temptation of fornication, and again, pornea means any sort of sexual uh, engagement that's not lawful in the eyes of God, usually for most people, most people, especially men, the urgent demand to flee from that uh, is good because if we don't flee from it, and it means it in terms of all that it encompasses, what's in our mind, what's in our desires, our thoughts, and then our actions, if you don't flee from it, we might fall to it at some point. So Paul, therefore, tells these men at Corinth, get away from this sin expeditiously, quickly. And we have a type and picture of this where he says flee fornication. We actually have a, a, a perfect type for this. And you know the story going back to Genesis chapter 39. It says, talking about Joseph who was sold into Egypt. And it came to pass 
as Potiphar's wife spake to Joseph day by day that he hearkened not unto her to lie with her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do business and there was no men in the house wherein and she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled. That word fled, Paul here in the Greek Septuagint translation is the same as what Paul says, fugo. Uh, Joseph took off. He ran from that because there was a temptation there and he got himself out. Paul is telling these people at Corinth, and remember the situation, is that part of the worship of Diana in the temple there was temple prostitution with males and females and that uh, they were used to that. They're now Christian and they were used to that activity. So he's saying, get away from that, that act of fornication, uh, flee pornea. In other words, um, everything about it, get away from it quickly. It's one of the crimes of humankind that if its presence in our lives is allowed to reside in our thoughts and then in our actions, or in our thoughts first, that we tend as human beings to fall prey to it. And I mean, all of our secular uh, romance stories going way back to the Greeks and well beyond prove that true. It's a human part of our existence, sexuality, and to engage in it is just natural. It's a very natural thing to do. And so the word fugo is really, really impressed upon us here. Flee it. And, uh, because, and that includes thoughts of it, because the thoughts precede the actions, reflections on it. Now, as we know, this context is speaking of, particularly to them, paid whoredoms. So let's bring it back to the context. And even, I mean, even in our own world, we can travel from here to California, and we have paid whoredoms available to us in that place called Las Vegas. And I smile just because... I can't believe it's still there, the, the Mustang Ranch. I remember as a kid, the song, There is a House in New Orleans They Call the Rising Sun. And it's been the ruin of many young boys, and God, I know I'm one. That Paul was speaking of such activity in his day. And, but we don't find any distinction in the Greek between what Paul says about pornea and paid... Uh, harlotry and just sexual practices. There's no distinction there for us either. So whether it's paid for or not, it all seems to apply. Contextually, it applies to paid, but it just seems to apply to a very broad spectrum of human uh, behaviors. Why the emphasis on this here to the point that Paul tells his followers to flee from all that it represents? Why is he telling them, get out of that? He tells us in the next uh, verse, he says, ready? Every sin that a man does is without, that's how the King James puts it, is outside our body. Every sin that we do is outside our body. But the, he that committeth pornea fornication sins against his own body. It's the only sin in scripture that uh, Paul says here that if committed, it hurts our own physical bodies. Now, sin in general, uh, what we might call the common sins of humankind, 
don't seem to immediately affect our body. You know, falsehoods, theft, dishonesty, pride, ambition, materialism. Our bodies don't seem to have a response to those types of things. They are sins without the body. Um, and they don't immediately seem to take any toll. But Paul says here, those are outside, but the sin of fornication really does hurt our own person. And certainly they might immediately affect the human mind and the human soul of us. I mean, there is a fascinating, there is a tremendous book I recommend from the pulpit. It's secular. It's by a woman named Wendy Shallot. I gave it to my girls to read when they were young, and it's called A Return to Modesty. Wendy Shallot, a Jewish writer in New York, interviews girls all over the nation about their first sexual experiences. And Wendy Shallot determines that outside of religion, people who weren't raised in church at all, the girls almost always, percentage-wise, describe their first sexual relationship as carrying with it guilt and shame and not as, as good as it had been described to them. And then a remorse later on uh, for engaging it in that way, that if they could do it a different way, they would, simply because they would have understood things so much differently, you know? When we're young, we make the mistakes of youth. Wendy Shallot, A Return to Modesty, is a great book for girls. If you're the father or mother of young girls, great book for them to read. Uh, Paul says here that he that committeth whoredom sins against their own body. We have to consider this in a few ways. I personally maintain that uh, whoredoms, pornea, so to speak, does have some eroding effect upon the mind, will, emotion, the suke, that's the mind, will, and emotion of man, the sarks, the fleshly body of us. Um, on some of us. I mean, other people, there are always exceptions. Hugh Hefner, who just recently died, an old age, he doesn't, it doesn't seem like that affected him. Uh, it doesn't seem like it did. Maybe he would have lived another 20 years. I don't know. But it doesn't seem to have affected him. But Paul says here that it does. So exceptions never make the good rule. So let's just throw the exceptions out and just look at the general premise. In my own experience and witnessing that of others in counseling, there is a general rule of thumb that activities like that do wear against us uh, emotionally, psychologically, and therefore physically. There, is, there are the obvious physiological effects with disease, unwanted pregnancy, emotional detachment and callousness as a result of promiscuity that can occur between the sexes. Um, and there can be extreme psychological adverse, psychologically adverse uh, things that occur in people when they are promiscuous. So I think that we'd have to be pretty ignorant to suggest that what Paul says here is untrue. I mean, often um, people who have issues later in life have had that in their life. Uh, however, contextually and considering that age, now just think of this, this was prior to antibiotics. This was in a time at Corinth, which was a connected place to the east and the west. It's a little isthmus. Corinth is right here, that isthmus, where ships came in and they, tra they, they exchanged here. We have the Temple of Diana, pre-antibiotics and proper medical care. Paul could have simply met, he could have just simply met, let me tell you something, 
This is something you want to flee from because if you don't, it immediately will attack you through all these diseases that we know can be communicated sexually. Uh, or uh, communed sexually. So Paul adds at verse 19, the most important part of this message. So it's not necessarily if we have um, drugs that can fix the problems today. It's not necessarily the psychological effects. This is the main point of what he's saying, I think. What? He asked rhetorically, question mark. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? which is in you, which you have of God. He's given you his Holy Spirit by faith on his Son. And he says, what? Don't you know that, that, that your body houses this Holy Spirit? And he says, which you've received of God. And he adds, and you are not your own. That's a big line there. You are not your own. Here is... I think the best argument as to why believers don't practice these things in their life. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Our bodies are its temple. And we should not be defiled or polluted by a sin that bears the nature of what we discussed last week. We don't join with people who are not of the body unlawfully because we're bringing in all the arguments we talked about last week. The point is, God has given us his spirit, and Paul tells us that because of this, we are not our own. Now, I don't know if you've given much thought to that, but that is a profound statement that if you come to faith and understand what God has done through his son in your life, that this is no longer yours to do what you want with. Prior to Christ, from our natural birth to the time that you understand Jesus' salvation, we do what we want with our body. That's, that's kind of the way we see life. We do what we want. It's ours. It's my life. I can do what I want with it. But once you come to understand that God loved us so much he gave his son, and that by believing his son, his spirit moves into us, when that spirit moves into us, given by God, Paul says, we are not our own. In a secular sense, just think of it this way. Pretend that someone has a child that they love and cherish, a toddler, and they ask you to care for that toddler during the week. Your house is full of cupboards with poison, uh, stairs, uh, a bull, pit bull that bites people, and all kinds of difficult things. Being the carer of that child, you would say, well, I've got to do some things, reparations and repairs, and I've got to put some locks on cabinets, I've got to put gates by the stairs, I've got to get rid of the pit bull, I've got to do these, or at least put it in the backyard, because they are a danger to the child. Okay, there is the secular analogy to this. And so, uh, this is akin to God giving us his Holy Spirit and moving into our house. That we don't just get to have the pit bull and the open stairways and the open cabinets for anything. We have something very precious, him, himself by his spirit, living in us by faith in Christ. And so Paul says, you are not your own. He adds verse 20 to this line. He says, for... And when there's a four in a passage, it's always reference to the one before. 
You are bought with a price. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are, which are God's. Uh, true sons and daughters that love and know God and his son have not only been purchased with the price of Christ's shed blood, bought, as it were, if you are a Christian, and you're listening to me, if you have believed that Jesus is the Son of God, if you have been converted by his Spirit, meaning you know that he's given you a new heart and you are his, you are not your own. You cannot be your own anymore. You are his, bought with a very high, precious price. Uh, Paul calls us bondservants uh, to Christ. In the Old Testament, they would take a bondservant, and the, that servant would say, I know I've worked my labor with you. I know that I am now free to go, but I have love you so much as my master. I want to be your bondservant. And the master would take that slave to the doorpost of the house and take an awl or a big nail and hammer it through the ear lobe of the bondservant, marking him as his forever and ever. And so the idea here when Paul says we are bondservants is that when we are purchased by Christ's blood, we suddenly don't have the freedom we had when we were born natural births. To some people, that bondage in Christ is not preferable. They say, I can't submit to you I still have to submit to my own will, and there's a disconnect there between what God wants of those he purchases and, and our own uh, desires. So this is the point. Loving him, uh, loving God, loving his son, honoring the Holy Spirit that is in us, we therefore submit to his will, we submit to his desires, and we forfeit ours. Now, we've talked about identity here, and, 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 and we've said our flesh has an identity that is not us. Our spirit is our identity when we know Christ. And that our flesh will do all manner of bad things. The flesh never gets better. The flesh will always go the way it wants. But our true identity is by the spirit which is in us that God gives to us. And it's by the spirit that we do his will. The flesh will rise up sometimes. The flesh rises up and does all sorts of horrible things. Thank God we're saved by grace. And with that grace comes his spirit that tells us we walk by what he wants and not us. As we grow in the, in the, in the faith, we start off with our flesh very powerful and mighty. And we're babes in Christ in our new identity. And as we grow in knowledge of God and his son, which is why we meet, as we grow in knowledge of them, there's a shift. And the flesh gets smaller and smaller and the spirit gets greater and greater. And this is who we are known by. This dies daily to Christ. We talk about it a lot here in Milk because that is really the purpose of the Christian walk. It's not just to be saved. It is to grow in knowledge of God and Christ so that our flesh diminishes more and more and more and our spirit gets stronger and stronger and stronger. If you first met me when I first came to know the Lord, my flesh was still powerful. My spirit was weak. You can see it evidenced over the course of uh, uh, me speaking on TV live. I'd only been born again for a while, and you can still see my flesh being strong and my spirit weak. And as they shift, 
we see a strength in the spirit and a dying to the flesh. The important thing for me to remember is this flesh that I have, it will always do bad. So if I let it rain, it will flee to fornication, not from it, you see. He is telling us to have the opposite in place. So if or since we love or obey God's commandments, which are to love, remember that. They are to love each other. Uh, we say, I don't love myself. I don't love what my flesh wants. I don't love my carnal desires. I don't feed them, therefore. I feed the spirit. I grow in knowledge and I pursue him because I've been bought with a price and I appreciate, I'm grateful for that purchase. Principle is really plain. Whoever buys us, we're indebted to. That's how it works. And if we truly comprehend that, you are, that we are purchased, if you understand that you were actually purchased by God through the blood of his son. Now, if you don't understand it, you're going to have a hard time with the flesh because you're going to, you're going to just, well, I, I believe on him and yeah, I wasn't so bad, so I don't really think the price was paid very much for me, you know. But if you see yourself as really needing redemption and really needing Christ to come in and save you from yourself, you will understand the price that was paid. And that price, if you can take yourself back to the cross, was meted out the minute he was taken out of the garden, walked out of the garden of Gethsemane and began to be pummeled and give his life for yours. When there's a disconnect between that, that knowledge and who you are, when you start to think of yourself as something really important and what he did is not as important, you'll have a disconnect between how much you'll allow God to live in and through you. Now, just let me just really quickly say, and you guys all know this, we don't get better in our flesh by strengthening our flesh in things. Our flesh, remember, is always bad. We get better by increasing the spirit, growing in the knowledge of God and Christ. That's why you guys gather together here. That's why we spend time reading the word. That's why we listen to the word taught, because we're growing in that knowledge of them. And it reminds us, as we learn more about them and what they have done for us, it reminds us that we have been redeemed. We've been purchased with a price. And that remembrance helps us to then do what he wants us to do. Lacking that understanding, we forget we were purchased. And we just walk about doing more and more forgetting that we were purchased and doing what our flesh wants to do. There's some great passages. Paul said in Romans 14, 7, listen to these passages. For none of us lives to himself. For no man dies to himself. Our lives in Christ are not for us to do what we want. We don't live to ourselves. We live to him. Uh, in Galatians 2.20, we read, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. We sing this. Nevertheless, I live, but not I. I've been crucified with Christ, his flesh. Nevertheless, I live, but not I. But Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me as that ransom to purchase us. He gave himself for us. First Peter 4.2 says, 
that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men. Don't live the rest of your time here once you come to know Christ in that, but to the will of God. That's the reason we learn of him. The more we know of him, the more we will live to his will. Less we know of him, the more we'll live to our flesh. Uh, second P, I mean, 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And he that died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. That we don't henceforth live unto ourselves, but unto him which died for them, which is Jesus. Galatians 1.4 says, Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from the present evil wo- uh, world. And then Galatians 6.14 says, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. And then Titus 2.14 says, He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from, he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. And those good works are to love other people. Those are his commandments. The works that we're called to do is to love. So I'm going to bring this all together in another aspect now. That's why I said on the board, put your finger in 2 Peter 1, 1 through 11. Uh, A really quick rehearsal. Paul has said, all things are lawful. This was last week. But all things are not profitable for me. So he he clears the board for us there. Everything is lawful to me. That in, and we talked about it. Everything is lawful to a Christian. That's why we don't point fingers of you got to do this, you got to do that. Everything is lawful to me, but not all things are profitable. He says, all things are lawful again. Everything is lawful, but not all. I'm, I will not be brought under the bondage of anything. So if you're out at a restaurant and you're having a beer and someone walks by, hey, you know, you're a Christian. All things are lawful to me. I'm not brought under the bondage of my beer. It's lawful to me. I'm not brought, I'm enjoying this beer. Get off my back. It's not about pointing fingers. Everything's lawful. But Paul says, not everything's profitable and not everything is good because it will put us in bondage. So be very careful about what you freely choose to do. To the believers at Corinth and then directly to us, he says now, flee fornication. And his reasonings include that when we participate in that, we fall under the bondage of its, of its uh, entrapments, which does occur. He says, flee these temptations. He reminds them you've been bought with a price and that as a result, our lives are no longer ours. We are a bondservant to God. The goal is that we walk in love as Christ also had loved us and gave himself as an offering for the world. Okay? There is a notion, a false notion, and I more and more just speak in it, that once God has redeemed us, once you realize that Christ died for you, that it's over, it's done, you're saved, once saved, always saved, and on you go into perfect heavenly bliss. As I, longer I study the scripture, the more I see, and a great deal of Christians believe this, how heinous that teaching is. Contextually, the scripture more than adequately refutes this notion 
in almost every word the apostles write. In fact, there are numerous places where the apostles encourage Christians to diligently pursue, diligently cling and hang on, and remember that they were redeemed and bought with a price, and to not forget that. Because when you forget it, you will fall. You will walk from that faith of, and from that place of being redeemed. So I want to share an example with you. And this is why we gather to study the word. You aren't gathering here, presumably, unless you don't know who Jesus is yet. But you're not gathering here, those of you who have faith in Jesus, to be saved. You're gathering here on Sunday on a beautiful day when you could be out doing what you do on a beautiful day. You're gathering here to have yourself reminded that you were bought with a price and that you are not your own. So when you exit here and the person cuts you off at the intersection, this guy doesn't respond and this person does. You see, that's why we study the word together so that we will grow in the spirit and die to the flesh. Because if we don't, the spirit will re remain an infant the flesh will remain strong and the flesh has a tendency to forget that we were redeemed and to forget that we are his. And I mean, the actual examples of that around us are, uh, are everywhere. And if you don't have them, I have them in, my, in the ministry that we do. So go to 2 Peter. And this is the apostle that Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to open the doors for various things, which he did. And he gives us excellent insights in the first 11 passages that read them with me as we study them together. And it's going to help you understand what the apostle Peter was telling people in that day who knew who Christ was, who were purchased by his blood and understood that and had that knowledge. So Peter gives his readers some instructions on how they will ultimately, when they die, enter into the kingdom of God. So remember what I just said. There's the idea of once saved, always saved. I understand who Jesus is. Boop, doop, doop. I'm fine. Do what I want. I'm, you know, that is not a biblical tenant. Instead, we have 11 verses where Peter says, let me tell you what you can do to make sure when you die, you enter into that kingdom. Okay. So here he writes out that way that they can be sure that their redemption is applicable. And let's read verse 1 and 2. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us. Don't forget that line. He's writing to people who know that they have obtained uh, that faith who know they have been redeemed, purchased with a price. That's the context. That's the audience that he's writing to in 2 Peter. You are believers. So he could be speaking right to us. Like, uh, obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. How did they get their righteousness and faith? Through the righteousness of God, our Savior, and of uh, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you. How? through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is the first time Peter mentions the fact that grace and peace can be multiplied in our lives, the increased. How? 
he says, through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's why we're gathered here, to get more knowledge of who they are so we can always remember what they've done. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't the only time he's going to mention knowledge of God and Jesus Christ and being faithful as we read on. Okay? The very next line, verse 3, he says, in fact, according as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. And again, he says, through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. So in other words, by his divine power, he has given us all things that pertain to eternal life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. So twice in three verses, Peter has revealed the impact of knowing God and knowing Christ. The more we know them, and we get that knowledge through a number of ways, the more we are likely to remember who they are, what they've done, their presence in us, and the less likely we will turn to our own ways, but turn to the Spirit. This is the layout that Peter gives. He says at verse 4 something pretty profound, implying that there is more than to just being saved than saying Jesus' name and receiving him by faith. He says, whereby, meaning by and through the knowledge of him, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. It means they're not yet fulfilled. We've been given promises as Christians. That by these promises, you might, future tense, you might be partakers of the divine nature. This is heavy. You might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Okay? So we have great and precious promises given to us, and the purpose of God giving us great and precious promises as believers on his Son, why has God done it? That by these, Peter says, we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We escape this person, we move to this person. That's partaking in the divine nature, the spirit person. This is not the divine nature. So he is telling us we have great promises as his who believed on him, and we have these promises move us to partake of the divine nature. And he's clear on that. Verse 5. And besides this, Peter now says, adding some directives that will serve to keep us all being barren and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, and besides all that I have said, he adds the following prescription for us as believers. And this prescription that he gives us, it's like a doctor saying, look, you've broken your uh, ankle. Here's my prescription. First, drink lots of water. Second, take your vitamins. Third, stay away from fast food. Fourth, exercise daily. Third, stretch that muscle. He's, Peter here gives us a prescription on how we can escape the worldly lusts and live so that we will receive in the future a, his divine nature. That's the goal, to have his divine nature in us. And as you have it more and more in you here, it's the love that you share for family, 
friends, neighbors, strangers, enemies. It's the love. And that's a hierarchy too, which we're not going to talk about. So he says, besides all this, he says, giving all diligence. All diligence. So we know God has saved us. He loved us so much he sent his son. And his son comes and sheds his blood. We believe on that. We have faith. He says, giving all diligence. The Greek is spude in that, and it means with eagerness. Give all eagerness. Add to your faith. Add to your faith. So faith is a presupposition here. He's saying you've already believed, so add to your faith. That saved you. You're saved by grace through faith. Add to your faith virtue. That's the first thing he says. Okay, now we read virtue and we think of virgins and, and chastity, but the word is aret in Greek, and it really means valor. It means excellence, and in many cases, it means your manliness. So you have faith. Add to it to men your manliness. To women, add to it excellence, valor. Okay? This is where Peter starts. You have faith. Now be people of excellence. Add to that. Of valor. Excellence in your pursuits. Be, man, be real men as men were made in the things you do in your life. Regarding uh, women, regarding children, regarding occupation, regarding courage. Be what men were made to be and do your job. Darn it. Step up in your arete, in your manliness. And then after you've done that, he says, knowledge. And that's gnos, or gnosis, or gnosko in the Greek, and it means you're knowing of things. Where does the knowledge come from? For us, knowledge comes, you know, three ways. How we gain our knowledge, we gain it through books and education. We gain it through experience. And we gain it sometimes through intuition. Those, those ways, some of them are debatable, but that's what we say. So here Peter commends that we take our valor, our excellence, our manliness, and we add to it knowledge of something, and then we, which we get through study, uh, like we're reading books now, uh, through experience, like you have in your life, and or through your intuition of what the Spirit is telling you. And then he says, to knowledge temperance. Now, that's in kratia, and it means self-control. So we have him building in his prescription things that God wants from those who are not their own, who he lives with by the Spirit. And he is laying this stuff out, and it's hard, because <coughs> if we focus our identity on our flesh, we say it's impossible. But if we focus our identity on the Spirit in us, even if it's small, you and I will grow in the Spirit and the power and might of the Spirit and the flesh will commensurately fall. So now he says, self-control. Take diligence, add it to your faith, your virtues and your excellence, gain knowledge and add to it self-control. Now let me just use a, a subject that men will understand, women will get, so I'll just use it. <coughs> Let's say you're going to go hunting for wild boar. Sorry. I'm not a hunter, but I'm just using this. Wild boar hunters, forgive me. And uh, first of all, it takes faith to believe that wild boars exist out there somewhere. So you, you add to your faith now. He says, 
uh, valor, excellence, or manliness. Well, you got to say, well, I got to gird up myself and go out and try to hunt the wild boar. So you got to bring some excellence to the thing. You're going to say, okay, so you first have faith through there. Then you add in that I'm going to be excellent in the pursuit of wild boar. And then if you're wise in the prescription Peter gives, you obtain knowledge of wild boars. You understand how to hunt them. You understand how to um, cook them. You understand what to beware of with them and how they travel out there in the desert. You gain knowledge of that. And then after that, a person has to exercise self-control. When you go out on the boar hunt, you take the knowledge that you have, that's called wisdom, knowledge applied, and you apply it to the situation of hunting boars, which your valor and your courage and your manliness and your faith have all amounted to at this point. If you go off half-cocked and you go against the knowledge you've gained, you could place yourself in grave danger. Wild boars are dangerous. So the natural result of valor in women's lives, uh, uh, effectiveness in women's lives, manliness in men's lives, and knowledge is self-control. It's the next thing that comes. This is a great virtue in the pursuance of God, these same principles. And to intemperance, or, and to temperance, not intemperance, and to temperance in Cratia, he says, add patience. So, just think about this. You've gone, you say, I have faith boars are there. I'm going to pull myself up and go hunt the boars. I'm going to prepare myself through knowledge that they're there. I'm going to exercise self-control in the face of the knowledge that I've gained on how to hunt wild boars. And now says, add patience. So you sit with your gun or arrow or whatever you hunt boars with. And you're waiting. Someone who exercises patience sits through the rain and the snow and the wind and the lack of wild boars, knowing that with through their patience and their self-control, they will be able to capture the prize. A young person, typically, who doesn't have the patience, they might have the book knowledge, they might have the valor, they might have the faith that boars exist. That person would say, I'm tired of this, and go running amok to try to find a boar and, and fall in a pit and be eaten by them. You need to have the patience when you pursue it. And these, Peter is building on these with Christians. This is what you do. These principles are ubiquitous. They're universally applied to all of us in the things we pursue, whether it's motherhood or, or, or teaching a class or whatever it is. These principles are there. Well, he's using them for the Christian walk. And he says, now have self-control at temperance and then patience. Um, it's in between the moments of self-control and patience in here that this is, is growing. It's, that's when you start to grow in the spirit. Where your flesh says, I'm going to exercise self-control. I'm going to exercise patience. And I'm going to allow my spirit to grow. And it is so painful. I've, we had a show once where we were talking about eating and it's a propensity in the McCraney family that when things are stressful, we eat. That's what we do, our whole family. And so I now am learning here in my life that I have to exercise self-control. And the thing that follows after that is patience, right? This is just for weight loss. It's nothing to do with God. When things get stressful in my life, I have to have patience that I will be satiated by the things of the Spirit. 
When I'm not, I get the things of the flesh, a cheeseburger. That's what we do. Now, let's say it's not food. Let's say it's alcohol. Well, you've said I'm going to exercise self-control. I'm an alcoholic. Suddenly my job gets really stressful. Am I going to be patient or am I going to gulp the whiskey? It's the same thing. Well, in, the, in harmony with what Paul's talking about, there is the propensity to say I'm self-disciplining myself. I'm not going to have fornication with people. Things in my life are not going well. Oh, the hell with it. Throw patience to the wind. Let me just go, uh, uh, go to the Temple of Diana and have relations or the Mustang Ranch. It's all the same stuff. Peter is saying here, if you want to be his and know that you bear the divine nature, not only say and emphasize self-control, but in the face of it, in that gap between self-control and patience, in that gap, know that that is when the spirit is getting strong and the flesh is getting weak. And it's tough. And where you have success in one area, it will come back again in another area to test you again. And God seems to use patience with us and he really knows how to do it. He says, okay, you say you're going to walk with me. You say, I'm going to test this a little bit. Let's see how your patience is. That's where the godliness grows. So it's by no mistake that the next thing he says, and to patience, he says, add godliness. That's the next one in line. When you have been able to exercise self-control and you've been patient in the trials of it, guess what comes next? Godliness, and it doesn't mean God, capital G, liness. It means holiness. It means piety. It means that you have allowed your spirit to overcome your flesh. Eusebia is the Greek word, holiness. I can't help but see the wisdom of a tempered, sagey grandfather who has gained the knowledge of hunting boars, experienced book smarts, has done it, has been self-governed, has gone out patiently, sitting there and no boars are showing up and the rain falls and the snow falls and his impatient grandson sitting there saying, this is ridiculous. You see, that's the image. We're trying to get to be the sagey grandparents. Just wait is what he's saying. So the result of all who embark on these directives from the Apostle Peter. Now look how far we have stepped from simply believing that Jesus came and died for us. According to the Apostle Peter, Look how far we've come just in this short few verses. He says, add to your faith this, 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 and this. And this is what empties churches. This, these are the messages that people do not want to hear because um, we want to hear Jesus came and saved us. Hallelujah, glory, I have glory in the worship. I love it. And the follow-up message being, okay, now let's read also what God wants as the owner of our person. That is so hard, we don't want it anymore. So we kind of have, are missing the point. And that's, that's why I'm bringing this out with relative to what Paul says to these guys at Corinth. Listen, yes, you know you've been saved, but you got to stop banging the prostitutes. That's what he's saying. Peter is telling us how to do that. At least cut back on it, Ken says, from an appropriate vessel. At least cut back on it. Right? Okay. And to godliness now, he says brotherly kindness. And, and that's Philadelphia in the Greek. And that means not only have you exercised self-control, you've been patient, you have piety and holiness. 
when a brother next door becomes annoying, you exercise love to them. Now we're getting to the end result of what God wants from those who are his, love. And he starts with Philadelphia, philos love, the kind of love that is to just people who are around us that we can ignore without much detriment. He says, start exercising brotherly kindness now. Hard. You know, when you've gone through and you've been temperate and you have gone through and you've exercised patience and the idiot next to you isn't doing it, really hard to exercise that brotherly love. It's the next one in line. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and to brotherly kindness, the next one, and this is the goal, friends, charity, which translated as agape love. That's godliness. That is the divine nature. He's taken us to the divine nature right here. Charity. This is what God is. God doesn't have charity. This is who God is. If you want to have his nature in you, you want to possess agape love, which is an unconditional, relentless, never-ending, turn-the-other-cheek, patient, self-effacing, forgiving love for all people all the time. We've had a conversation recently. If someone was born with the capacity to love like that, would they need Jesus? Absolutely not. Because the, the love is what hangs all the law and the prophets. And Jesus came and gave the new commandment that we love God first and then our neighbor. So if you can love perfectly, and you can, you can skip all those steps. Because if you love perfectly, you can, be, uh, you can have brotherly kindness, and you'll be self controlled and you'll be pot full of piety and holiness and you'll be everything that you're supposed to have if you can really truly love God first and then man. But we can't and so we go through this process that God is taking us through so that we can have his divine nature. That's the goal. So when you're listening to me at home and you're here in the campus and you wonder why do I come, the purpose is so you can exit here and have more of an understanding, a knowledge of what it takes to truly love. And it doesn't come through osmosis. And it's a verb. It's not an emotion. And it comes through this dying of flesh and letting that person who owns us, God, move us into that place. To possess that agape love is to possess God. So if you've had an inkling of that in your life, where you have, outside of yourself, been able to actually respond to somebody in this kind of love. Just like it says in Les Miserables in that last line of the song, uh, to love another person is to see the face of God. That is true. If you can truly love selflessly another person, you are in the divine nature of God. Now, it flees from us because we're in flesh. But boy, he wants the tables to shift from selfish love to his divine nature operating in us. And go back to, it's not just the faith so that we are saved. He wants us to bear fruit by him abiding in us, coursing through us, and teaching our flesh to do as he did. His, as, as Christ did when he walked with us. Now listen to what he says, verse 8. We're almost done. For in these, for if, sorry, these things be in you, and then he says, not only in you, but abound, 
If they do, they make you, they lend to our makeup, they, that, he says, that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So he returns to that topic of knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If they're in you and abound, you will not be barren or unfruitful in that knowledge. That's why we study the word. Your knowledge is growing, painful as it is, self-condemning as it can be. Don't let it. It's God working in you. You've been saved. That's done. You had faith in that. So don't let this lead you to guilt and despair and go out and get drunk. He, he, he's saying, if these things be in you, you won't be barren in your unfruitfulness or unfruitful in your knowledge of Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus said when he walked the earth, this is life eternal, to know God and his son, to know them. That is life eternal. Peter is tapping into that knowledge. He's done it three times now. To know them helps us to grow in them. To not know them doesn't, right? Now listen to what he adds at verse 9. But he, she, whatever, that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see far off. And what's the danger in that? He tells us right here. And has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Remember I said, you know, there's a teaching that goes around once saved, always saved. Peter says, you know, if you lack these things in you that he's just given that laundry list of, you can get to the point where you'll forget that Jesus even came and saved you. And he points that out clearly right here. That that principle of I've been saved, I'm his, forget it, I do my life, it's my life, I do what I want. That is not true. So... This is an indictment of the once saved, always saved. An indictment against thinking that we can receive God's gift, he can move into us, and then we can resist him putting that all on our ear and punching us as his bondservants. It does not work that way. I'll stand on my, to my grave teaching this because it's, it's a travesty of scripture to teach it, though the audiences don't typically want to hear it. And he says, wherefore... The rather, he repeats this line, brethren, give diligence. Be speedy, urgently attentive to what? Listen to this line. To make your calling and election sure. I thought my calling and election was sure. I thought once I believe, saved by grace through faith, period, done, that's it. That's not what Peter says here. He says, listen, be diligent to make, to make your calling and election sure, ready, for if... There is a conditional uh, article there. For if you do these things, you shall never fail. How can he be talking about us failing? We're his. He started off by telling us, this is to you who have been saved by faith. Why does he go into this? How can we ever fail if God is in us? Peter seems to clearly tell us that we can right here. And this is why he's teaching this. And he finalizes his teaching with this promise to those who do, who diligently pursue such things, he says, ready? This is the whole point. For so an entrance shall be, future tense, ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Again, for so, as a result of these things, if this, if that, for so an entrance will be given to you, an entrance. And that's the goal, is that when we live the Christian faith, we die, 
we exit this flesh, which is in the grave, our spirit, which we uh, allowed God to grow in maturity, enters into heaven, and there's a great city there, according to Revelation. It's called the New Jerusalem. It's surrounded by a city wall, just like the old Jerusalem was. And those who are allowed into that city are allowed into his kingdom. And so he says here, a great entrance will be made for you. If you, it will be administered to you abundantly, he says, the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so I want to reiterate that all these things are possible in and through Christ. Our faith on him, not our flesh. Don't go out and start trying to do it through your flesh. Otherwise, you're just making your flesh stronger. Go out by dying to your flesh and saying, not my will, but thine be done. You own me. You bought me. I was paid for with a great price. I am yours. Put the all through my ear. I'm walking with you. Guy cuts me off right out here. I'll let you work. And when he works, you know his love is present. And then you already taste what it means to be in him. You already start to understand what it means to walk in his love while you're here. And then to enter into that kingdom once and for all, by and through these things that he talks about. This is, what, this is why Paul is telling them, flee fornication. Paul could, I bet, my bottom dollar, someone could say, if I fornicate as a Christian, do I, do I lose my salvation? Paul would say, no. You've been saved by grace through faith. But he would say, all things are lawful to you, Christian, but not everything's profitable. All things are expedient. All things are lawful to you, Christian, but I wouldn't do anything that's going to bring you into bondage because when you're put into bondage, you could forget that you were redeemed and that you were owned by God and you would cease to live and walk with him by the Spirit. And there's a grave danger in that as presented through all these messages which he says. We're going to begin to uh, discuss, in fact, how much time do we have? How, when did I start? When do I, how, how long do I usually go? I, don't, I have no idea. A little bit longer? Okay. Let's go to ch- uh, chapter 7 really quickly of 1 Corinthians. The Jews believed in marriage. In fact, they said, if you're 23 to a male and you're not married yet, you're a loser. Get married. Why? Because God said, listen, it's not good for a man to be alone. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and uh, mother and uh, go with his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Okay? The Greeks, going all the way back to uh, Thales and Lycurgus and um, Socrates, the Greeks said, you know... I'm sorry, women. This is what the Greeks said. Because of the temper of women, it's better to not marry. Or it's better to remain celibate. Now, remember, Corinth is a Greek city. So we have a situation here in chapter 7. Paul's been talking about fornication. Don't go to that. But now we have a a problem because we have some Jews who have believed in marriage. And we have some Greeks who are saying, no, 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 it's really not wise to do. Uh, you know, just go ahead and go to the prostitutes at the temple because of the temper of the woman. They forget about their own stupidity. But they said, because of the temper of the woman, don't do it. So Paul has received a letter. 
We don't have that letter. It's not included in scripture. It's been lost. And he refers to this content of this letter that was sent to him about a situation. That's what happens in chapter 7. So we'll go a few minutes. He says, now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me. Again, we don't have. He adds, there's a colon there. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Period. Hmm. In response to the inquiry of the letter that you sent to me, Paul says, it's good for a man not, it's well, it's convenient for a man not to touch a woman. And to a Jew, and frankly to me, the, you have to say, what the what? What are you talking about, Paul? God set it up so that men would touch women. Why are you saying it's good that a man not touch a woman? I mean, what the front door is he talking about here? This is strange, okay? Does the advice make sense? Does it make sense to you today that we would read that in the scripture and say, it's good for men not to touch women? And help, just to help you understand, when he wrote touching women, it meant within marriage. It, he's not talking about the back seat of the car and touching her shoulder and kissing her. Because he, they didn't do that. He's talking about marriage. That's when men and women could touch each other legally. That's what marriage was. It wasn't a time when a license was given by a priest or pastor or a governmental agency. It was when men and women said, okay, we are going to allow ourselves to touch each other. And so when we do that, God says, you are married for life. Okay, I harp on this one. People don't get it. When Abraham's wife, Sarah, said, Abraham, take my handmaiden and make her your wife. Abraham went in the tent and he touched another woman. And that was the marriage. No one ran out of the hills and married Abraham to Hagar. It's when a man touches a woman, because Jews could not touch women unless they were married. It was forbidden. So, in fact, they even, I'm going back, they even had a law that if two men get in a fight and a woman gets in there and touches them, that there's big problems with that. This touching thing was huge, okay? Because to touch was to be married. So he says, it's a good thing for a man not to be married, is what he's saying here. How come women aren't addressed in this? How come he doesn't say it's a good thing for women not to touch a man? I mean, if you were a biblical literalist, you might feel the right to say, you know, dear lady next door, it's not good for a man to touch a woman, but it says nothing about a woman touching a man. You know what I mean? You see, if you're a literalist, you could twist the scripture to say that. So you got to use some reason here, right? So what is this all about, especially in relation to Adam and Eve? And the law. Is Paul creating his own religion? No. He's speaking to that time in that context. And in his words, they, we have to understand his words in that light. You can't read the Bible, say, I believe and follow everything in the New Testament. Read that line and explain it without context. So what's he talking about here? He is teaching them that in our situation surrounding us here, it is good for a man not to marry a woman. Uh, certainly he did not mean marriage is unlawful or bad or evil or against God. He just meant, if you want my advice on this matter, it's better you don't marry, okay? He admits here that if men were to choose to refrain from touching a woman, marrying a woman, uh, that would, it would be a good thing. 
We know that he has been speaking about fornication here and pornea and whoredoms outside of marriage. He's adequately expressed the dangers of those. But now, apparently to the question, is it good for us to marry then? Which they received in a letter. He says, it is good for a man to remain unmarried. Why? Jesus has told them, this is what the end is going to look like of everything, this age. And these are the signs. All of them will happen within 40 years, and then I'm coming back. He told people, you who are standing here, some of you will see me return in the clouds. He told his apostles, you won't go to all of Israel before I come back with your message. There are timestamp statements that make it clear he was coming back to that age then. I know it's very different. So he sells them this, right? This is the context. If you can wait, and it's not going to be that much more, it's probably better that you don't marry. There's no reason that you should marry when he's going to come and take his kingdom. What he says here makes no sense at all if Paul didn't believe Jesus was coming back to end everything of that age. No sense. And yet people will say, Paul was right. It's better that we don't marry. Which goes against God's commandment in Genesis that a man should leave his father and, and join with his uh, wife and they should be one flesh. Goes against that completely to multiply and replenish the earth. Goes against God's overall plan. I mean, imagine if every Christian in Paul's age who read this, or every Christian heard it, decided not to marry, therefore they couldn't fornicate. We wouldn't have any Christians born. I mean, it would just, we'd be like the shakers. They didn't believe in this either, and they fell apart and became nothing. So it doesn't make any sense that way. To not marry was the proper direction, but improper general advice to us today. This is how we read passages of Scripture and say it applied to them. It doesn't apply to us. Where do you get the right to do that? You get it through context. But this is the contextual advice to them at that time. However, he adds, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, which we've been talking about at length, let every man have his own wife. Listen, this is when he addresses women. And let every woman have her own husband. In other words, if you can't avoid the drives that you have in your, in your flesh toward fornication, then women get your husband and, hus and men get your wives to avoid fornication. Otherwise, flee fornication, and therefore, you have a choice. The King James presents this differently. The literal translations really say, because there are so many whoredoms among you, let all men have his own wife, and let every woman believer have her own husband. That is really, it's not to avoid fornication. That's not in there. It's because of fornication, let yourselves do that, right? So my advice is sound to you. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. If you don't have to burn in your flesh and you don't have to go that way in your uh, nature, then don't get married. That's my advice. Um, now, why does Paul say it's good for that in the first place? I would suggest that in that day and age, there were men who had, for the cause of God and Christ, and women, we read of Scripture talking about women who remain virgins, for the cause of God and for the cause of Christ, there were men too who refrained from relationships with uh, women and men and women who refrained from relationships with men. And Paul says, you're better off if you can continue in that way. If you can avoid fornication, don't marry. I base this on John the Revelator's revelation of the 144,000 
who were of the house of Israel, and I mentioned this the other day, where it says, and these were they who were not defiled with women. doesn't mean women are defiled, and, uh, but it means these, because of the context of Revelation, these 144,000 did not participate in the pagan rituals with prostitutes. They were not defiled with women, is what that means. Okay? And they, and that harkens back, one more thing, and we'll wrap it up. In Exodus, Moses comes to the children of Israel, and he says, wash your clothes, change your attire, take a bath, and men, for three days, do not go into your wives. Why did Moses tell them that? Because the glory of God was coming down upon them. Part of sanctification, sanctification of the Old Testament was to avoid contact with each other, especially if God was going to come and visit on Mount Sinai or at the temple. This was how it was. So this is what this is referring to with Paul tells them, if you can be like me, Paul wasn't married at this time. We'll talk about that next week. It's better that you don't marry. Cling and wait for the end where he comes and takes his bride, who is clean, clean, pure, sanctified, holy, and will go forward. Do these things have any application to us today? Absolutely not. However, if Jesus is still coming to take his bride, they do. And I would advise every young person within the sound of my voice that if you can refrain from all forms of pornea, it's better you never get married. Now run and tell mom and dad that one. It's not going to sit very well because it doesn't work today. It's not the context today. Marriage was ordained of God, and, and it's a good thing, and it's a beautiful thing. It's how we can have children, etc. So I just wanted to bring these couple verses in chapter 7 out to you to help you show we have to study the Scripture in context or else we will get some really harebrained ideas. Okay, questions, comments, and please make them for the benefit of people who are at home because they love your comments, and they write me and tell me about them. And Ken is raising his hand which is unusual because typically he blurts out. At least cut back. This is Ken. And it, it was just awkward that you got really quiet when I said that because I didn't think I said it that loud. <laughs> but uh, the message today I hear um, <clears throat> in my heart, because I'm a sinner too, I guess, if there is such a thing. But uh, I hear... What you go without isn't your salvation if you fornicate. You go without the peace of Christ. You, yeah. And when he moves in, if you participate, then he moves out. And he doesn't move out, but we move away. We move away and we forget yes. that he's ours. That's a, such an important point. Remember, our salvation is not predicated on our worthiness. Our salvation is predicated on our faith. So if we sin, which we do in our flesh as Christians, our salvation is not in jeopardy. What's in jeopardy is us, what scripture calls the hardness of sin, of unbelief, coming into us and causing us to even remove ourselves so far, not that God has moved, like Ken said, we remove ourselves so far that we forget that we're ever saved in the first place or act like it doesn't matter. That is the problem of engaging in the sins of the flesh willy-nilly without uh, considering what the will of God would be in our lives. Great point. All right. Don't bow.
is on. Hey, it works. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Hey, uh, so is it safe to assume then, um, with all these things that Paul was talking about and telling them not to do, that these are thi- are um, examples of failure of love? Absolutely. So Absolutely. you so you can put all these under the broad category of not loving. Always. Okay. Always. Yeah. I think that's an easier way to see it sometimes. Are you telling me I could have said this really short and just... A little bit. Thanks, Steve. Just trying to help. (laughs) I love these. uh. By the way, Steve will be teaching next week. (laughs) I I can see. Might be better. So... I can say from my own experience, like what motivates me to let my spirit grow stronger and my flesh die to to the flesh every day. Um, as far as like finding more peace in my life, but is there more from your perspective um, motivation of why you would do that? Why you would seek for virtue and for all the things that Peter listed. Why? Yeah, why Why would you want to do that? It, why would you want to pursue that list? Yeah. Because it assists, he says, you can be sure, that then you can be sure and you will never fall. If you do those things, you can be sure. Now, if you're sure by the Spirit, uh, there's, no, there's no laundry list that's imposed upon you. This is just things that he's teaching us that might help someone who is on the teeter of falling. Maybe you are gifted with the Spirit in abundance and don't have to bring that into your life. It's very open. But he does suggest that those things will assist somebody who might be shaky in their flesh and might flee to it instead of the Spirit. The other part, I guess my question is, is like more of a, like, well, I guess um, my point is that Um, in my own life, like it, I like just the way my life functions and whether I feel, um, good about my life and stuff like that. When I have, um, let the spirit grow stronger, um, I have more peace in my life and I have more functionality, but without that, um, there, it seems like there's a natural consequence of pain going into bondage to other things. Yeah, and I agree with you. You would think that just by seeking the Spirit and the peace that comes with it, we would discontinue to seek with the Spirit. But the, the Apostle's point is the flesh is so weak in some people that uh, it draws more powerfully to a person's will than the Spirit does. And so that's what they seem to reiterate. And remember... They were often talking to men in this. They were, and I, I know that's unfair, but pretty much they were talking to the men uh, because of our natures are a little bit more carnal and, and barbaric. And, and um, the women had uh, often still, because of the way it was set up, their identity through their husband, even though we were in the New Testament then. So they still, as Jews, were teaching mostly men. And I think it applies to them. And that's why I gave the boar example instead of the other ones. But good points, Rachel. Hi, this is Liz. Um, When you first started talking about this, it reminded me of um, 
my late brother who had some pretty serious problems of the flesh that put him in jail at times and I guess we can leave it at that but you know I came to realize that um, some of the mental illness that he suffered from was kind of brought upon himself I believe and I just it's just kind of what I felt in dealing with him that that was brought upon him from the sin from the guilt of the sin knowing that he was doing something that was very wrong and I think at times feeling like he was um, uh, incapable of controlling the flesh and I mean to the point that he was homeless and um, I mean that's kind of how he died and so um, you know when you talk about the physical aspects of those carnal sins that was a very good example of that and uh, uh, incredibly sad but and to add to that uh, Carl Jung and um, M. Scott Peck later more modern not to tap on uh, psychological uh, insights too much but uh, they say that all dysfunction all psychosis of um, of certain types I'm not talking about like uh, just, we're talking about people that go and talk to a counselor. I'm not talking about medicated psychosis. I'm talking about people who just have a problem. It's usually unresolved sin. That they have, like, and that's what you're saying, your brother had some things that were unresolved in his life, and it probably led to him feeling like he was not fixable. And that's why Jesus is the answer uh, in this. He, they've been forgiven. Don't harp on all that. You're, it's fine. Move forward. So that's a really good point. Is that on? Uh, I guess it's obvious, but it would be interesting to know what, what question the Corinthians had for Paul. What, yeah. what question he was actually answering, you know, in their letter to him. Yeah. What, uh, well, what does he say there? Does he say, um, we, don't, I, we don't know the question. No. But he says, really I mean, He quickly, could have been talking about young men going off to war or something, or... Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Uh, now concerning the things of which you wrote, it, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So now concerning the things which you wrote, we don't know. Yeah. yeah. Really good point. Thanks, Earl. We don't know. But we know that the answer is it's good not to touch a woman. So it's like playing it backward. <laughs> That's right. That's the Me Too movement. Is that it? All right. Let's pray. And welcome all those, those faces here I haven't seen for a while and faces that are new. You're always welcome to come and sit with us and get out of here and, and please take bagels. And it's good to see our teenager, teenagers got out of bed this morning. All right, let's uh, pray. Lord, we love you. We love our teenagers and we love our youth and we love our kids and our grandparents and and just like uh, someone brought up, Steve, this is all about love. That uh, by the Spirit, your Spirit, it tells us clearly that you are love. And so if we could just, just kind of look to that, like Rachel was talking about, do we need all this, you know, if we just look to the Spirit? Well, if our heart is yearning for, to love like you loved and to be love to our neighbors and be Christ to our family, friends, and enemies uh, through this type of love, Lord, empower us. And help us to uh, maybe forget some of the uh, lists that 
uh, we read here and just step back and say, how do I love better uh, unconditionally and fully people around me? Uh, we pray that you'll take the message that we discussed today and have it open up dialogue and then move us to uh, a greater reliance upon our spirit and a greater death to our flesh. And we pray that nobody will come under condemnation uh, because of their failures of your flesh. That's what you took care of, was that condemnation that was in the failures of the flesh. But help us to recognize a need for growth in the spirit and the fruit of that spirit, which is love. Uh, we seek you, Lord. Do we have a list, Ken? No, Ken? Nope. We don't have anybody on the list, Lord, but we do pray. We do, um, we've been praying for Lisa and had a praise report. All the cancer uh, has left her body except a few spots on her spine. She was judged terminal, stage four cancer, and uh, got that praise report from her. So we thank you, God. We pray that you'll bless Diana and Carla and, uh, and Gracie, and we pray that uh, you'll bless them. Bless Deb's granddaughter, who's been in the hospital so much from this ammonia buildup, that you'll heal her. And anybody else whose names uh, I have <coughs> forgotten or omitted, that you'll uh, heal them and bring them to a knowledge of you and your son. Pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> <coughs>